everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and ours too. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And today we are talking about Season 2, Episode 4, School for Scandal. Oh, I love this episode. Otherwise entitled, Why Does TV Always Get College Wrong? TJ, do you want to give us a brief summary of the episode? So our favorite Cabot Cove resident, Jessica Fletcher, goes to a small New England college town where she is set to give the commencement address, which is lovely. I think it's a good fitting capstone to her illustrious career as a novelist. I don't think she's giving the commencement address because there, the commencement doesn't live in a house. I think she's giving the address. What? Well, you said address, like where someone lives and not address like speech. Oh, good God. Anyway, as I was saying, uh, once there she gets, you know, she hobnobs with the most wealthy and powerful faculty, which, you know, the fact <laughs> wealthy. That- I'm going to have to mute myself a lot because this is going to make me laugh so hard. Okay, okay. The wealthy and powerful I'm merely I'm merely presenting it as it's the illogical vision of academia that is presented in this particular. Yes. We can get into that in a moment. The English department head is apparently some incredibly powerful and wealthy person. Right, who lives in like a mansion, essentially. (laughs) Um, But as it turns out, Joyce Laird, or Jocelyn Laird, she's the English department chair, has a daughter who is supposedly the a romance, a seedy romance novelist who has caused her a great deal of shame, but who brings this very hunky man to Jocelyn's home, who then ends up murdered. And it turns out that he's actually been blackmailing both mother and daughter because it turns out the daughter's not the romance novelist. It's actually the English department chair who's been writing through her daughter's name. Then, of course, we have to figure out who did it, which is just where Jessica comes in. And she has a very fun relationship with the the detective, who it's like his first time actually investigating a murder. Hijinks ensue. We have lots of great guest stars, including June Lockhart and Roddy McDowell. And that, but Roddy McDowell's character, Dr. Alger Kenyon, which is a brilliant English department uh, faculty name, was the murderer because he was secretly in love with Jocelyn and he beat the guy in the head with a candlestick in the bedroom. Sounds like an episode of Clue. It sounds like Clue. Yep. So that's the summary. Wait, but you forgot the whole subplot, which is deeply important to complicating our suspect pool, right? That Jocelyn, as the head, for some reason she's not called a chair. This is very confusing. The head of the English department is apparently going to promote and hire someone, that's not how academia works, as the assistant department head. And so all of the minions in the English department are sort of competing to win her favor, right? Um, And of course, Alger is one of the guys who wants the job. Right. And she's having like an affair with said professor that she is not Alger, the other one, Professor Ron. Um, I don't think if we're supposed to think that she's having an affair, but that she uh, has sexually blackmailed him. Okay, well, that, that's, yeah. That if, that's he, if he sleeps with her, he'll he'll get the job. Okay, that's perhaps more accurate to say. Yeah. It's gross either way. <laughs> yep, pretty gross. Which so, is why, my friends, we have the tenure and review process. So the chair of a department does not get to decide who gets promoted. Uh, we have an entire body of faculty members from across the university, and it has to be approved by the Board of Trustees. This is not how academia works. There's reasons for it. All right. Well, let's so, – uh, <laughs> do you want to start out with your gripes like you did last time? Because I, I feel like you have some about this episode's representation of academia. 
Well, obviously, I feel like every time TV tries to do college, it does it wrong, and it's just frustrating. Um, and in this case, the whole idea that the tenure and review process is just woefully like ignored, so that we can have this plot um, where Jocelyn is going to promote someone, and they're, so they're all jockeying underneath her to win her favor. It, it's you. At one point, you called her Joyce, mm. and I think that was a really interesting slip. Because Joyce was our tyrannical TV producer in the last episode, who also had people jockeying to win her favor so that she wouldn't kill off their characters, right? And I think there's a real parallel here with Jocelyn, the English department head. Their names are kind of similar, right? But it's also this idea of, like, the Mm -hmm. woman in power that everyone else, you know, is sort of desperate to. And it's a real shift in murder, she wrote, because you and I have talked a lot about how the rich white guy – who's so awful, is often the one who gets killed. Uh, In the last episode, it was a woman who got killed, who was the awful rich person. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Jocelyn is not the murder victim. In fact, she becomes a suspect. But part of the reason she's suspected, I think, is because she is such a horrible person that she sets herself up to be someone who stands apart from the rest of the people, if that makes sense. Right. No, I think that's very true. That's an interesting parallel that I had actually not put together until you just said it, um, as far as this, you know, these tyrannical, not tyrannical, but maybe corrupt female figures of authority, which is really interesting. Um, Yeah, I wouldn't say, yeah, I think you're right, because Jocelyn's not really a tyrant. I think we're supposed to definitely empathize with her, especially later in the episode, once Jessica gets to know her better. Jocelyn is... As much as her daughter embarrasses her, um, the daughter shows up to the party and, like, flashes everyone nude. You know, and she's, she's skinny dipping in the pool. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty. And then, like, deliberately opens her coat and flashes everyone before she leaves. So she's, you know, she's embarrassing. But Jocelyn immediately confesses when she thinks that her daughter has actually committed the murder. So she's willing to protect her daughter. So she's not a horrible person in that sense. Right. Um, but she did kind of tell a guy that if he came over and slept with her, he'd get a promotion, which is horrible. Yes. And then, of course, we learn that she's the one writing the romance books. And I think we're supposed to feel pity for her that her life's work has been researching Walt Whitman. And she tells Jessica it doesn't pay. And she – but, you know, so so it's like, oh, well, poor Jocelyn. She's had it so rough. She's using whatever power she has to make herself feel good about herself or something. I don't know. But my gripe was – like the whole Walt Whitman thing was super confusing because she says, do you know how much money I made off the Walt Whitman biography? Only enough to pay off a second-hand car. Which, like, yeah, go ahead, Teach. You start. As I say, I don't know how much you in the listening audience know about academic publishing, but – Unless you are literally like a superstar, you are not going to earn enough money from a biography of, of Walt Whitman to pay off like a bicycle, let alone a second. That's a lot of money. That's a ton of money in academic publishing. And she's like, it wasn't enough money. You paid off your car, lady. What are you complaining about? Maybe if you're Stephen Greenblatt or, you know, Judith Butler, then you might get enough royalties. Maybe for a new car. Your book's... <laughs> yeah, for a new car, you know, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not like the vast, the vast yeah, majority of Yeah, but the other problem I had, it was, it was framed as a Walt Whitman biography. And so um, that's, that sounds like mainstream trade. nonfiction trade publishing, which then we would expect bigger royalties. Um, but it's framed as her research for the college. 
It's just very confusing. And I just, I mean, it's not hard to get it right. I mean, it's very hard. It's very easy to get it wrong, which is the, oh, the board. Okay. But what interests me, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that what you, like, I'm glad you brought up this issue of, of the Whitman and also like the, the distinction this, sh- this episode draws between, so there's a distinction that the show draws between, on the one hand, the sort of elevated discourse of academia. Like we have Alger talking about his many articles about Elizabeth Barrett Browning. We have Jocelyn talking about her discussion of uh, Walt Whitman. And on the other, like there's this fixation that they all have, particularly the faculty, about the the seediness and the, the, the disgustingness. Uh, like it's really striking how pejorative they are of romance novels. Yeah. Like it's, it's really... It's really perplexing, uh, but not unexpected. I mean, that's the thing. It's very much of a piece with how we would expect. Even today, there would be a lot of contempt among a certain kind of very conservative faculty toward pop culture, toward pop literature, particularly anything that's female or feminine. But it's true. I mean, Alger, like part of his like anger toward uh, Daphne, which is Jocelyn's daughter, is that she has sullied her mother's reputation by basically by extension because of all these like the the trashy romance novels. But even Jocelyn herself is very vehement about how much she hates that she's yes. been like how much she's sullied herself by doing this. Yeah, she's like, it's, it's as it's if she's me- debased herself by writing them, right? Because she says it it only took six weeks and it was so unfair to watch people who had no talent getting rich off this stuff. Which so yeah. it's as if she's you know she's sort of. It's she's prostituting her talents essentially to do this. But it's so interesting that they she says this to Jessica, who is also writing pop fiction. This is my issue, right? Throughout the it, whole episode, that it's between English research writing, academic writing, and Daphne's romance books, and it's like, you guys, Jessica also writes pop literature that sells widely, right? Like, where's the connection? And I suspect that it's because of what I said earlier, that it's not sexual. Like, it's not about desire. Like, yeah. it's not in the same way. Like, there's a, there's something that's deeply unsettling to very stuffy conservatives about, and you know this. I'm not, Showing I'm not sex scenes. Yeah. Talk I, about sex and yeah. women's desires. Because like, I think anyway. we get a little bit of that in the opening scene where um, Ron is teaching and he's reading one of Daphne's books aloud to his students. Mm-hmm. And it's like the start of a sex scene and they kind of freak out and he's like, What's your effing problem, you guys? Like, there's sex scenes in James Joyce. Right. You know, so I think he recognizes the implicit sort of snobbery. Yeah. And, and I, the, the hypocrisy of condemning romance. Right. And I love that scene for that moment. I mean, as a as a pop fiction writer and reader myself, and I know you'll f- feel this way too, like, it's very irritating when people still sneer and look down on romance, fantasy in particular, too, the fa- the genres that people love to sneer at. As opposed to say, like, I mean, even mystery and sci-fi, which I'll use as a useful distinction, like, have at least some patina of respectability. Like, yeah, like sci-fi has its, I don't know, it's um, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson or, you know, Frank Herbert or, you know, those kinds of big names that are literally. I have no idea what he's talking about, you guys. That are literary in the same way that like murder. Or, I think, but I, yeah, I think you're onto something because I think what we're supposed to think the reason why Jessica's books aren't brought into that is that there's, as you say, like a respectability that they're they're cozy mysteries. They're mm-hmm. not like slashers, right? Right, and so it's the explicit violence, explicit sex, like that kind of stuff that they're all looking down on. Because yeah. even the police chief at one point is like he assumes Daphne is the one who murdered Nick. And his argument is that anybody who writes scuzzy books the way she does doesn't have the same moral code as the rest of us. 
Just like there, that's a big leap that someone writes erotic fiction, therefore they are probably a murderer. I mean, that's a huge leap, right? I mean, I have written erotica, and I have yet to murder anyone. Well, and the best part about that is Jessica's like, "Have you ever read them?" And he's like, "Well, yeah, I've read all of them." Right. So why are we condemning her if we're all reading it, right? Which is the whole argument that romance writers and romance scholars are making is like we still Mm -hmm. today condemn this stuff. And as TJ says, often because we associate it with women's desires, their books written by women for women usually, um, women are the biggest consumers, right? And so we we frown upon it. And yet romance is the best selling fiction in the world. There's a reason for that, right? So why are we condemning something we're all reading and writing? Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's a similar stigma that attaches to fantasy in particular. Like within speculative fiction, there's still a lot of people who look down on fantasy for not quite the same reasons. But it is, you know, escapist. It is, you know, deemed to be of less literary merit than sci-fi, for example. Mm -hmm. Because I suspect fantasy is itself more feminized than sci-fi which is more traditionally associated with masculinity hmm. and with you know cerebral and rationality and all that other nonsense i hadn't thought of that but i guess you're probably right like there's something sort of inherently feminine about like elves and fairies and yeah we think of robots and spaceships and aliens sort of like masculinist mm-hmm. in a way. But it's interesting then. I mean, like, I liked that moment with Jessica where she's implicitly suggesting that the, you know, the lieutenant is basically exposing his own hypocrisy. And I liked that moment yeah. to be like those people who most vehemently decry mm-hmm. romance and other sort of seedier genres usually expose more about themselves than they perhaps intend to. It's a lovely little grace note, I, I thought, in the episode. I did not. I did not. So I had to get it in there. I had to restore my brand. (laughs) We'll have to make that part of a a Cabot Cove Gazette trivia game. In which episode did TJ not say grace note? The other thing, Teach, is that we're – so Jocelyn sets up this distinction between her Walt Whitman biography, which only paid enough to pay off a car, which, by the way, like, I have tons of academic publications. I would love to be able to pay off my car. Like, that's just not how it works. And the reason, just so you guys understand, like for those of you who aren't in academia, um, your research and your research publications, you don't get paid for. You might get a, if you get a book contract, it might have nominal royalties. But most of your publications don't come with a paycheck because the idea is that you've done them under your salary. Um, so it's part of your work for the university. So every time I publish an article, my dad's always like, this is so great. How much did you pay for it? And I'm like, nothing, dad. Because it's supposed to be work for the university under my salary, right? And yes, if, if you think that is messed up, you will, are not alone. <laughs> I can keep going is and it- it'll get even more messed up, you guys. But um, so so anyway, so she sets up that she only was able to pay off her car with the Walt Whitman biography. And by contrast, we see that Daphne, Daphne has become so wealthy that she's buying art to invest her money, right? So there's this real dichotomy of the earnings. But, you know, there are a lot of romance writers, and many of them would also be grateful if they could only pay off their car with their earnings. So to be a Daphne, is it's not a dichotomy between what you're writing about. You know, it's not the distinction between Walt Whitman and erotic romance. It's a distinction between, like, an, an erotic romance author who's exploded. I mean, she's like... She, I don't, what's, she's like Jackie Collins, you know, famous, right? right? She's not just a, so it, it really isn't that she's writing romance. It's that 
she's managed to be this breakout mega seller the way that Jessica is with mysteries. And that's so rare. So I, I, I kind of take issue with the way that they're like, well, what else is there to do if you want to make money except write romance? Like we, most people don't make money doing that either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it has a very, it views the field of writing fiction through a very rose-tinted lens <laughs> and helps contribute to this the sense among the general public that writers have it a lot easier than they do because most of us, as I'm sure you know, as I know you know, have to really hustle, hustle, hustle constantly just to make ends meet. Yeah. So we look at these uh, these Daphne figures with envy and also being like, that's not really how it is for most writers. <laughs> we should probably talk about something else in the episode because I'll get stuck on this for like hours. Um, but it's probably the minutia of publishing and of higher education. Hiring practices might be kind of boring to our listeners after a while. <laughs> true. That is true. I, but I do, like I said, I do appreciate the way the episode is so complex in that way like it is engaging with questions of higher education of cultural value because that's really what it's about is about cultural value i think what, that's what genres and what people get accorded that value and which one i think don't. that's emblematized in the conversation that ron and jocelyn have um where jocelyn says i look i can't promote you to assistant department head because you don't publish enough and ron says well i just don't understand like i'm supposed to be teaching kids something not writing dry, dusty articles no one reads, you know. And so I think he has um, kind of the attitude that we tend to have in the 21st century. We're like, yes, you still have to do your publishing, right? But but being engaging students and engaging the general public in what we do has become equally important, whereas Alger represents a sort of old model of academia. He says he publishes several articles a year on Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I just want to tell you all, like, people in the humanities are not publishing several articles a year. That's just not happening. Uh, it takes way well, too maybe, much research. Maybe a very to do select that. few. I mean, it's a rare select few. Then he's publishing be, the exact same thing. <laughs> yes, which often happens. <laughs> anyway, but I think he represents like an older model, right? Where he just wants to be in his mm. library, reading his books, like disconnected from the outside world. And so we see this, you know, tension between them. Yeah, and I think that that's why I think Roddy McDowell was the perfect person to play this role because he always has that fussiness about him. Like as an actor, like he's always very, very skilled at playing fussy people. Like it's true in almost everything I've ever seen him in, whether it's Planet of the Apes, where he plays Dr. Cornelius, whether it's in uh, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, which he co-stars in with Angela Lansbury. Wait, um, he who is he in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks? He's the vicar. Really? Yeah. I don't remember that, but yeah. that's a small part, so it's fine that sure. I don't remember it. But I mean, my point being is that, but that's sort of his star persona. Like he has yeah. always played that kind of role, and it, it's one he plays particularly well, I think. Um, and it was why I was so excited to see him in the role. And he also, like, I mean, he was queer too. Like, there's. I was going to say, don't you feel like Alger seems really queer? Like you're using fussy, which is obviously like a code word for queer in older media. It seems like he's super gay, and then, but we're supposed to think he's in love with Jocelyn, right? But yes, he, I would say that he is. I mean, it's like it's that kind of like this is going to be a deep cut. So if you've ever seen the film Lord Laura, which is starring Gene Tierney and Clifton Webb, he's very much and Clifton Webb plays this sort of Svengali figure to Laura. He's very obviously queer, but like lusts after Laura in a way that gay men often lust after women to control them and to like sculpt them and to like bask in their glory. So I think that's the kind of dynamic that I'm seeing here with, with Alger. 
and Jocelyn. I believe that more, that instead of being in love with her, like wanting to have a relationship with her, it's more of a diva worship, I believe. that's that's That was the sense that I got. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that he might convince himself that he's physically desiring her, but really what he's doing is the same kind of hero and heroine worship that gay men are very familiar with. Especially gay men of a certain direct of a certain generation. Yeah, I think he probably isn't out, and he maybe he he doesn't even recognize his own sexuality. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like that's why I thought Roddy McDowell was perfect as someone who <laughs> lived a very closeted life, but you know, but was well known among certain circles for being gay. That's why I thought he was really perfectly cast in this role. Yeah, because I don't think we necessarily like are led to dis- to dislike or hate Alger. We find may find him a bit. Oh, I think we're supposed to think he's super gross, aren't we? I mean, maybe. TJ, you're having some like identity. <laughs> you connected with this character, and it's it's uh, affecting your ability to interpret the episode. You're like, I suppose, you guys yeah. don't be mean to Alger. I I get him. Okay, <laughs> he and I are one. <laughs> I am an old queen. It's true. So yeah, yeah. don't go murdering anyone because you think I'm going to promote you. That's all I'm saying. But yes. Yeah, so- yeah, yes. Bridget is the Jocelyn to my this is the new pairing. It's no longer <laughs> Seth and Jessica. It's it's Alger and Jocelyn. But let's talk about the murder victim, because I did find him to be an interesting character, Nick, who kind of if I was to push this like queer reading too far, I actually think that Al- the reason Alger hits him with and kills him with a candlestick is displaced queer desire. But I I don't necessarily think the episode supports that reading. <laughs> but I've just put but I'm just putting that out there as a potential. That's TJ's. Um, you guys go to ao3.org and you can read TJ's fanfic revision of the episode <laughs> in which he talks about. No, I'm just kidding. He doesn't. He hasn't actually written it yet. But I mean, I did find that Nick did sort of embody a certain kind of like. It's interesting that Daphne is dating him or, you know, whatever. And he's blackmailing her, of course. But he does sort of like look like what we might see on the cover of a romance novel like with his sort of blonde good looks and his muscular hairy chest like he is the sort of epitome of romantic masculinity we've Um, seen this in other episodes right these men who are sort of archetypally beautiful 80s studs uh, Mm -hmm. which i think at one point daphne even says that like how would she describe him and she says stud Mm -hmm. um but and and like those other men we also know that he's horrible i mean we see jocelyn watching him have a fight with daphne in which he actually physically assaults her yes this it's horrifying to watch and what's more horrifying is jocelyn just turns around and goes back in her room and shuts the door can you imagine being a mother watching a man hit your daughter and then just turning away it was horrifying to me yeah and then he comes into her bedroom and like looms there for a moment and so we're like that's the sort of moment of ambiguity before we realize that he's been blackmailing them both and we're like oh does jocelyn have something going on with this yeah thing? like and then is, of course it's yeah is jocelyn that. sleeping with him too right yeah and then so. later we even find out that he had an affair when he was a student at crenshaw the college that we're at um that he had an affair with one of the professor's wives yep he seems really awful and just sort of like toxic masculinity embodied yeah, and um, we don't really know him very well. Right. So his murder is kind of, eh. Yeah. It's it's not anything we're supposed to cry about. Right. Um, we kind of just didn't know him, and he kind of was not that great of a person. Right. Which leads, of course, to the investigation, um, which I enjoyed primarily just because it was fun to see Jessica's bond with um, 
with the detective like because he's mm-hmm. just so hapless because he doesn't really know what he's doing and it's one of those moments where he's just like here jessica i'm gonna give this all over to you like he's basically turning over the investigation wholesale to jessica yes <laughs> and just kind of tagging along for the ride which is very funny but also just like holy shit like you know what is going on? <laughs> can you imagine living in a town like that Oh, I hope you never meet the police when she's not in town. Where a famous detective rolls into town, and or sorry, famous romance novelist rolls into town, and she said, "God, a famous mystery novelist rolls into town and magically, you know, yeah, because your own police chief is too incompetent." But there's such it. a sweet moment at the end when she calls him and says, "You need to come over because Alger's going to confess," and we don't hear his side of the conversation. But we're led to believe he's like, "Oh, are you going to be there?" And she says, "No, no, I won't be here because you can handle it." So it's like she has graduated, you know, and it's commencement day too. So it's like she has symbolically graduated him. Yeah, and you she's can raised- take care of the case by yourself. Yeah, and she's running late, of course, as the you know in the finale, like that's the last frame is her riding her bike frantically trying to get to the commencement on time. I'm glad you mentioned that because I do feel like the episode has a little bit of emotional whiplash or tonal whiplash. Yes. Um. So like, you know, there's the. The darkness and the seediness and the seriousness and the heaviness of the party scene at Jocelyn's house and everyone's talking about academia and writing. And and the next morning, and we see the abuse scene, right? A physical abuse of a woman. And then we cut to jaunty music, JB's jogging in a blue suit. Mm -hmm. And it's like this really jaunty music when she finds the murder victim. And then, you know, during the early investigation, there's at one point where there's actually like a flip wipe. Like the screen flips over. Yes, you know, it's yes, like this yes. really goofy transition. And then the the scene at the end that you're talking about where she's riding a bike frantically trying to make it to commencement on time, which doesn't even make sense because she was just with two of the professors who right. also need to be at the commencement. But I feel like those those scenes are done so comedically and cute and, you know, light. And it's really in contrast to like the sort of horribleness of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, she literally just dropped a bomb, like, a second earlier, announcing that, you know, Alger killed a man out of misplaced lust for, or whatever, hero worship, adulation, whatever you want to call it, for Jocelyn, and revealed that, like, you know, the other guy was having it, like, was basically going to trade sexual favors to become the chair, assistant chair of the department, while his girlfriend, like, I don't know, the whole thing was just, you know, this emotionally devastating scene, and then Jesse was like, well, I gotta go, I gotta get to commencement. (laughs) Yeah, and it's telling, I think, that, um, you know, we don't get the final scene Mm. of her, for instance, she's, she's the, getting an honorary degree because it was her old friend is the wife of the president. Right. Um, and the, the old friend is played by June Lockhart. I want to get that in before I forget. And the president is played by the guy who plays Dean Wormer on Animal House, which is also yep. like a very funny meta text. John, John Vernon, yes. He yeah. plays a very similar kind of character, which is lovely. But so she's, you know, so she's there for this honorary degree. And um, I lost track of where I was going with that. I mean, it's just, as you say, it's just. <laughs> I have no idea what I was going to say. I suspect you were going to say that we don't get like the, you know, the usual denouement where we like, yes. get, I was like, where we get all the things like. We the, could the have recap. seen her at the train station saying goodbye to Beryl right. and Dean Wormer, right? And like having that little moment with them. But we don't. We just get her alone on her bicycle riding to commencement. That's our freeze frame for the episode. I would have liked to have seen some of the speech. Like she could have been like, you know, said something particularly witty and then laughed and then freeze frame. So it's just, I don't know. It, that would be enough. a good idea. Yeah. I should have been hired to write through the show. Um I don't know. It just seemed like not enough time to really process 
the devastation we just left behind. Like it just didn't seem like quite enough was given for to for all that to really gel. Well, that's because we had to spend so much time talking about the nature of academia and the nature of publishing and stigmas about women's desires. And of course, we needed time to set up the fact that this is a party in the 1980s where having mango flavored punch is incredibly inventive <laughs> and unusual. And there are cucumber sandwiches that are running out. <laughs> I just love that moment where they're like, what is this punch? This is exquisite. Oh, never had this before. It's like, it's mango. Do you remember when mango was like exotic in the U.S.? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair, I remember. Well, I, I guess not in the U.S. because probably it wasn't exotic in, on the coast or in the south, you know, closer to where mangoes grow. But I mean, remember, I'm from Appalachia, so many things strike me as exotic. Is mango still exotic yeah, there? A, yes, to put it yeah. <laughs> You'll have to introduce them to Mango Punch next time you're I will. I'll throw a great big bash at my opulent <laughs> mansion and be like, come on, come over for some <laughs> Mango Punch. Come over for some Mango Punch. We should talk about fashion, too. We didn't talk about that last week. And I just – I know we're running out of time, but I just want to say that she wore such beautiful cowl necks mm-hmm. in this episode. Even her running sweatsuit had a cowl neck. Yeah. I, I appreciated that too. I thought that uh, Jessica was in fine, fine sartorial form today. <laughs> she looked so good in her academic regalia uh, in the last scene, which is too. no easy thing. Like it's really hard not to look like an <laughs> idiot in your regalia, especially when you have, you know, you rented and it doesn't quite fit, and then you have a tam, and it never works properly with your hair, and the tassels always getting in your face, and she just looked really good. I was so jealous of how good I know, she I was looking the same thing. I was like, wow, if anybody could pull off at, like, regalia with grace and a plum, it would have to be Jessica Fletcher. Of course, of course it would yeah. be Jessica. Like, is there literally anything she cannot do? <laughs> she is, this is the greatest evidence yet that she is superwoman, is that she can wear regalia without looking foolish. Yeah. That's probably a good place to end. Seems like it. <laughs> so next week we will be talking about a very exciting episode sing a song for murder which is our first emma mcgill episode mm-hmm. are you excited teach? i am ex- i'm very excited good um but for now that's gonna do it for the cabot cove gazette i'm bridget keys and i'm tj west we'll catch you next time bye our theme song is reaching the sky by alexander nakarada used under creative common license you can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.